Well, as we continue our journey through the book of 1 Peter, uh, we are in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6 this morning. Uh, so for those of you that have been here the last few weeks, we kind of took a detour at the end of uh, chapter 2 of 1 Peter to talk more just about the, the Bible's concept of authority. And uh, in some ways, that was done kind of in preparation for this morning. Uh, this morning we have... Um, probably what is the most difficult text for us culturally. In 1 Peter 3, 1-6, we have the command for wives to submit to their husbands. And so uh, part of what I wanted to do the last three weeks was to show how the biblical idea of submission does not simply mean uh, that we just check our brains at the door or check our wills at the door and just do whatever we're told. Rather, to submit biblically is a very large and difficult command that both men and women have to follow in a whole variety of ways. Uh, but again, as we turn to 1 Peter 3, 1-6 this morning, we're looking particularly at how wives are called to submit to their husbands. Now, as we look at some other scriptures to, to flesh this out, first I want to go to Matthew five sixteen. Uh, and that just reminds us that all of our good works are to be done so that others can see them and glorify God. I think that's the heart that's driving 1 Peter 3, 1 to 6, uh, that Peter wants others to see the goodness of God, and that's why the command is given for wives to submit to their husbands. And so we see that same message reiterated in Matthew 5. Uh, then we're going to turn to the idea of submission more broadly between wives and husbands. So Sarah Rutman will read for us 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 12, which tells us that the woman is the glory of man. And in my message, I want to come back and incorporate that into how that fits into this call to submit. And then Sarah Harmon will come and read for us Philippians 2, 5 to 11, which will tell us about really that song that we just sung about how Christ submitted to the Heavenly Father perfectly and how we as believers are to have that same mindset. Um, so, uh, John, if you want to come for us and begin our reading in 1 Peter 3, again, then Don will come in Matthew 5, and then we'll have our last two readings as well. 1 Peter 3, 1-6. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Matthew five sixteen. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 12. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the, tra- the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Well, again, I know I don't have an easy task this morning. Uh, We are uh, fighting an uphill battle uh, in regards to the culture that's around us, are we not, in terms of seeing these words in 1 Peter 3, 1 to 6, as being in any way good words or words we should follow. Uh, And yet, we who trust in the Lord, we who want to follow after God, we must see every word from God as a good word. Amen? We don't uh, have the option of kind of picking and choosing what words we like, what words we don't like. (laughs) Rather, uh, we must uh, read all of God's words and we must submit to all of God's words. And so that's why uh, I uh, am unapologetic about uh, preaching these words this morning. Uh, And yet, uh, I do ask that you would pray for me, even as I preach now, that I would be able to uh, show forth these words, not as a, a, a burdensome or an unpleasant command, because again, God doesn't command us anything for our ill or for our harm, uh, but rather as a good and a gracious command from God. And so that's what I want to try to do this morning, is show how uh, this command, First Peter 3 verse 1, the be subject to your own husbands, that's kind of the essence of the command, how this command is indeed a, a good and a beautiful thing, and not just a, a hard and a challenging thing. Uh, and again, I know it's a difficult task, but pray for me, and, uh, and uh, I trust that the Lord will work by His Spirit through me, and work in your hearts as well, to let you not see the Lord's commands as burdensome or as hard, but as ultimately good and for our good. So there are really uh, three different motivations that I see in these verses uh, that God gives to wives in particular to submit to their husbands. Um, so first I want to look at those three different motivations, and then for most of my message I really want to hone in on one of those motivations in particular. The first motivation that we see is given to us in verse 1, and that motivation is that hus- the wives want to win their husbands to the Lord. So look at verse 1, wives be subject to your husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So this is kind of the the first and most basic motivation you could say for why a wife should submit to her husband. And that's the case that Peter's writing to in particular that she has an unbelieving husband, a husband who's not following the Lord, and the wife wants her husband to follow the Lord. And so how is the wife going to help her husband follow the Lord? How is she going to bring him to obedience to Jesus Christ? And Peter here says that the way that the wife can help her husband come to obedience to Jesus Christ, not that the wife can do it on her own, right? It's the work of God in the husband's heart, but the wife can have a role to play. And what is that role that the wife plays? Well, she is subject to her husband. And as Peter says, that their husband may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. And so I hope that even just just very first motivation, just on a very basic level, can kind of explode some wrong ideas of submission in your head. Sometimes people get the idea of submission means that a wife can never try to, you know, change her husband or can never try to challenge her husband in any way. But here... As Peter is commanding a wife to be subject to her husband, the whole motivation, the whole basis is that the wife is trying to change her husband, right? The wife is trying to get her husband to go from a place of not trusting God to a place of trusting God. And so submission, biblical submission, is a way of doing that. And so I understand from this, I infer from this, that part of what a wife is doing in her submission to her husband is praying that her husband would change, is as she has opportunity to give counsel to her husband, to persuade him to follow Jesus Christ instead of going a different way, that she's going to take those opportunities, again, in a humble way, not in a self-righteous way or demanding way, but she is going to submit to her husband in such a way that she's trying to show her husband how good God is, how good Jesus Christ is, and she's going to be hopeful that through her conduct, through her humble and submissive conduct, that her husband is going to be led to Jesus Christ. And so that's the first motivation that we see in this passage for why a wife should be subject to her husband. Notice also of this motivation that this motivation is not dependent upon a wife having a godly husband, right? 
Sometimes we can try to soften this idea of wives being subject to their husbands by saying, well, if she has a good husband, then she should be subject (laughs) to her husband. But no, this seems very clear that this is a husband who's not following the Lord. And even in this case, again, I know it's a hard command, but even in this case, the wife is to be subject to her husband because she wants to see him come to the Lord. So that's the first motivation that we see. And again, I think that's the most kind of earthly motivation, the most carnal motivation there is, is that we want to see the wife's husband come to the Lord. The next motivation we see is given for us in verses three and four. It says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious, which in God's sight is very precious. Just especially wives, just hone in on those last words of verse four, in God's sight is very precious. This is the second motivation that Peter gives us for wives being subject to husbands. And that is just, who do you want to please? Who do you want to honor with your life? And we can ask this of every Christian, right? Not just of wives, but of all who follow Jesus Christ. Who do you want to honor? Who do you want to be happy with us? When it comes to the time when we die and we stand before the face of God, before his judgment, who do we want to be pleased with us then? Do we want to look back on our lives and say, well, all my friends really liked me. They thought I was a great guy. Or my spouse really liked me. They thought I was great. Or my workplace thought that I was the best worker there. Is that what we want to say when we come and stand before the throne of God? No. We want to see the smile of God when we come to that final day when we're standing before his throne. We want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful, faithful, faithful servant. And that's Peter's exhorting wives to hear. He acknowledges that the responsibility that wives have to submit to their husbands is a very difficult responsibility. I know he acknowledges that because if you go back to verse 13 of chapter 2, he acknowledges that submission there is hard. If you go to verses 18 to 25, he acknowledges that submission there, which is for all Christians, again, is very hard. And even as we go on in chapter 3 and into chapter 4, he acknowledges that Christian obedience often involves suffering. So Christian obedience is often hard. It is not the most pleasant thing. But Peter says, keep your eyes fixed on that smile of God. Keep your eyes fixed on this reality that you can be very precious in God's sight if you just try to walk humbly in obedience and faith to him. And so that's the second motivation that we see here in 1 Peter 3, that we just want to be pleasing to God. And so we will sometimes do what is challenging in order to be pleasing to God. And then go on, verses 5 and 6. It says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, what is implicit here in verses 5 to 6 And again, I know I can't draw it exactly out of these verses, but what Peter is calling us to look to in these verses is he's calling us to look to the rest of Scripture, right? He's calling us to look to the Old Testament, to the example of Sarah and Abraham, to the example of saints who have gone before. And so what I want to do in expanding upon this third motivation that we have for wives submitting to their husbands is to look at this grander story of Scripture, to look at how marriage, at how husbands and wives fit into the bigger story of Scripture and how that bigger story itself, how looking to the Old Testament, how looking forward to the book of Revelation, how looking at this bigger picture of how saints have lived throughout the ages can potentially help us to receive this command, again, not as just a burden, but as a delight and as a joy. So that's where we're going this morning. We see that one motivation for this command is just that husbands be won over to the gospel. We see that another motivation for this command is that we would be pleasing, that we would be precious in the eyes of the Lord. And again, the third motivation that I want to look at for this command is that we be part of this grand story of saints that go from Genesis to Revelation. 
I think it's only when we see marriage in this full Bible picture, it's only when we see husband and wives in this full Bible picture that we can actually see that this command for wives to submit to their husbands is not a harsh thing or a bad thing, but is actually a good and precious thing. Now, if we're going to understand this story of marriage from the Bible, that means we do need to go back to the very beginning of the Bible. That's where marriage was first invented by God. We need to go back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. So if you have your Bibles with you now, I just invite you to flip back to Genesis 1 and 2, and we're going to look there at the creation of marriage in hopes that looking at this idea of the creation of marriage can help us to see how this call to submit is actually a good and gracious promise. Now, in setting this up, I first want to make sure we understand what is going on in Genesis 1 and 2 as we look at the creation of marriage. Remember that God existed. God came before anything was created. And remember that everything that is created is dependent upon God ultimately, right? So it's not like God just kind of had this creation presented to him, and he has to figure out, okay, how am I going to work with this creation to get across the message that I want to get across? Okay, that's not how creation works in the Bible. Rather, God from eternity past had a plan of redemption in mind, and he was able to craft everything in creation to conform to that plan of salvation that he had. In other words, it's not like the idea of marriage suddenly came to God and God was like, okay, I I see there's marriage here. I've got to figure out how marriage fits into my plan of redemption or my plan of salvation. No, God said, I have a plan of salvation. I have a plan of redemption and I want to show it to the world. How can I show it to the world? And he said, I know I'm going to create marriage so that there is a picture in creation of my plan of salvation, of my plan of redemption. So you see, God's plan comes first. His salvation comes first. His purposes come first. And then all of creation falls out from that. All of us are radically dependent upon God. Everything that exists, exists in dependence upon God and is supposed to show God's glory in some way. And marriage is no exception to that, okay? So that's where we are when we come to Genesis 1. God has existed from eternity past. And when God creates, he creates everything by the sheer power of his word, okay? He's not negotiating with anyone to create. He's not dependent upon anything else to create. He has a plan, and he's bringing it to fulfillment in creation. So in Genesis 1, look at verses 26 and 27. This is when God first creates man and woman. Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Okay, so notice, man and woman are created in the image of God. Man and woman are created to have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock. So man and woman share equally in how we image God. Man and woman share equally in the authority that we have as image bearers of God over all creation. And because we share equally in this image, because we share equally in this authority, God then gives the charge to man and woman in verse 28. So Genesis 1.28, it says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So again, notice this command was given to man and woman. Man cannot fulfill this command alone. He is not sufficient in and of himself. Woman cannot fulfill this command alone. She is not sufficient in and of herself. Rather, it takes both man and woman working together for the same purpose in order to accomplish God's purpose. And what is God's purpose? That we would be fruitful and multiply, that we would fill the earth and subdue it, that we would have dominion over the earth. And so this is what women are to do. This is what men are to do. Women, 
You are to have dominion over the earth. You are to subdue the earth. Women, you are to be fruitful and multiply. Men, you are to do the same thing. Again, we have the same command of God. We have the same command from God. We have the same responsibility from God. So do not think that the overall vision for mankind is somehow biased in favor of men's activity or biased in favor of women's activity. Both men and women are needed. And yet, we see that men and women are very different. That they are not uh, identical. They are not given the same orders to fulfill this command, but rather through men and women working together in separate roles we fulfill this command. And so that's what we see when we come to Genesis chapter 2, where Scripture kind of splits out for us the creation of man and woman. So if you go down to Genesis 2, verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Okay, so this is talking about men in particular, right? Males in particular. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. So God took a special interest in making man. And then after the Lord God formed man in verse 8, you see there, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. So God makes man. God prepares this perfect home for a man, prepares this garden of Eden. And then God places man in Eden. Now, if you jump down in Genesis chapter 2 to verse 18, then we see the creation of woman. It said, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So this is the creation of woman. Woman is created as a helper for the man to accomplish the same purpose as a man, but as a helper. Jump down to verse 21 of Genesis 2. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man." Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So woman was taken out of man, was created perfectly equal to man, was given the same task that man was given, but was given this task in a complementary role to be a helper for the man in the work that he was doing. Now, in creating man and woman, as having the same task, but having these slightly different natures, God was simply reflecting his beauty in the creation of man and woman that he had already reflected in every other aspect of creation. So if you go back to Genesis 1 and you look at the many days, the six days of creation that God gives there, we see that in every day of creation, what God is doing is he is creating something new, and then he is differentiating one thing from another. So look at verse 3 of Genesis 1. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. So we have this first division, light and darkness. Then look down at verse 6. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. So God creates the sky with water above and water beneath. And then verse 9. God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And so then we have dry land and we have water. So notice in everything that God is creating, he's creating something new and then he's differentiating these two things. And at the end of everything that he creates, he always says that it is good. Now, what this should generate in our minds, the way this should help us to think as Christians, as believers, as those who love God's word, as it should help us to realize that there is beauty in difference. There is beauty in distinction. 
right? When God separates the land from the water, God doesn't say, okay, now the land is good and the water is bad. So let me just focus on the land. When he separates the light from the darkness, he doesn't say, okay, now darkness is bad and light is good. No, the complementary way that everything in God's creation works, the way that water works with land, the way that darkness works with night, the way that one thing always works with another thing, this difference in being able to work together to our common cause is the very thing that makes creation so beautiful. You can see this in a really simple way. If you just look at any painting, right? I mean, to make a good painting, what do you need? You need different colors, right? You need areas of shadow. You need areas of dark. You need areas of light. You need areas of brightness. You can't have a painting that's just all one solid color and say, look, this is the best painting because this is the best color, right? No, there's no such thing as like a best color. All colors work together, and when they come together in the right harmony, in the right order, that's when you have a beautiful painting. I remember as a kid, um, I like ice cream just like every other human being. And, uh, and so I would go to the ice cream shop and, you know, at Baskin Robbins, you'd have like the 31 flavors. And as a kid, I would always kind of agonize over, yeah, but which one is the best, you know? I want the best ice cream. And so I would wrestle really hard with like trying to find the best ice cream. And it took me getting older and more mature to realize, you know what? There's no like best ice cream. You know, all ice cream is really good. It just depends on, you know, what you're feeling like, how hot it is, what the flavors are like. You know, all ice cream is good. And you can appreciate every kind of ice cream in its proper time, in its proper place. And this is the way it is with God's creation itself. It reflects how God himself is the three-in-one God. Within God himself, there is this distinction between Father, Son, and Spirit. Without there being separation, without there being disharmony, but Father, Son, and Spirit all have these different roles, and yet they all work together perfectly. And so God has made this creation that is this stunning, is it not? How we can have mountains that are beautiful and glorious, and then we can go down to the beach, and we can say, wow, this ocean is really beautiful and glorious too. And then we can go to the plains, and we can say, this is beautiful and glorious. We go to the forest, this is beautiful and glorious, right? Everything works together in this amazing harmony that only God could have dreamed of. And this is what we are to see when we come to the creation of man and woman in Genesis 2. That man is created from the dust of the ground. He's created in this wilderness area, and then he's placed in the garden. And then, as we read in 1 Corinthians 11, woman is created as the glory of man. And she's created this glory of man to be man's helper, to be the one that enables him to cross this finish line, so to speak, of the task, of the mission that God has given for him. And so man and woman work together in these different but harmonious ways. And in that way, they are able to accomplish this mission that God has given to subdue and fill the earth. Now, to see how this works together just a little more, I want to go to 1 Corinthians 11, which we read at the beginning of the message, and then I want us to jump to Philippians 2, and I want to try to put these texts together so that you can see how this beautiful design that God had in creating man and woman, husband and wife, yields this idea of submission that is actually good and beautiful itself. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, starting in verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband. Okay, now I don't want to get into the idea of headship this morning per se, so I'm going to go on past this, but just notice there in verse 3, the head of a wife is her husband. Um, one thing in particular to notice, it doesn't say that the head of women is men, Right? So it's not like men have generic authority over women and nobody understand to be that. That's why I'm teaching this morning, right? If you are married, then you have a head who is your husband. You're not to submit to just any man. Women, the only head that you have is your husband. If you are married. If you are not married, then you don't have a head. And that's okay. All right. So, but the idea of submission is embedded there. Verse 4. 
Every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered, with his head covered, dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Now I'm reading quickly there because I don't want to get into head coverings this morning, but I am driving on because Paul makes a really important point in this. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover her head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Okay, verse 7. That's what I want to look at more closely there. A man ought not cover her head, since he is the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. Now, what Paul is doing in that verse is he's simply reflecting on Genesis 1 and 2, what we already read. Man was created in Genesis 2 in the image of God, right? God formed man, formed males from the dust of the earth, and then placed him in the garden. And then God formed woman from man. So in that way, man is the glory of God, woman is the glory of man. Now, one really important principle to realize about this is that in Scripture, the glory of something is not like a, a diminishing of that thing or a like coming down from what's best. It's actually an amplification or a distillation, right? So if you remember in the temple, in the Old Testament, in the temple you have three different areas. You have the common area, and then you have the holy place, and you have the holy of holies, right? So you have these kind of three orders. And as you go in to the holy of holies, you go to a more holy place. Holy of holies is not less holy than the outer court. It is more holy than the outer court. Okay, it's that image, it's that language that is being used here in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7. Man is the glory of God, and then woman is the glory of man. So if you want to see what in particular is glorious about God, then you can look at man. And if you want to see what is even better about God or about man, then you can look at woman. So in other words, woman is seen as the pinnacle of creation, right? The the better thing, not as the worst thing or the lower thing. To be the glory of man means that you're kind of like the best parts of man exemplified, okay? That's what the glory of something is. So man is the glory of God and woman is the glory of man. All right, that's what we saw in Genesis 1 and 2. That's what we see in 1 Corinthians 11. Now I want to jump over to Philippians 2, which we also read before the service. So Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now here, the Apostle Paul is talking to all of us as Christians. We are all to have this mind, men and women. But again, wives, I hope you take a particular application away from this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So first notice that at the end of that passage in verses 9 and 10, Jesus himself is given this kind of added glory, is he not? Verse 9, God has highly exalted him, highly exalted, that means he's given him glory, He set him above everything, bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Okay, so Jesus has this glorious reputation, Jesus has this glorious name, And then go on to verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So just these amazing words to exalt Jesus, to show that Jesus himself is above, is over, is greater than anything else in creation, right? Okay, well, how did Jesus get there? How did Jesus get that name that is above every other name. Well, again, 
Go back to verse 5. This mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is how Jesus gets the name that is exalted above every other name. He becomes obedient to the point of death. I know this seems paradoxical or impossible to our human understanding, right? But this is the way God works. Who does God glorify the most? Whom does he praise the most? He praises Jesus the most, the one who became most humble, the one who lowered himself the most the one who became most servant-hearted, who is most willing to be obedient to the Father. This is the one that gets the most exaltation and the most praise. So you see how even just in the, the life of Jesus himself, we have this amazing pairing of two different things that nevertheless come together to display something even more beautiful. On the one hand, in the earthly life that Jesus lived, We have this radical humility that he would not even claim his rights as the divine son of God. No, but he would humble himself as any other man. That he would live that life of humility. So we have that here. But then he dies in humility. And God raises him from the dead and he ascends to heaven and he sits now at the right hand of the Father where he is reigning with all authority in heaven and on earth. So the one who showed the most humility now has the most authority. So see, God doesn't say this thing over here is bad and is less than. This humility is bad and is less than. And this authority is what's really good and what I really want to see. No. God says, I love humility. I love submission. And when I see humility, when I see submission, that's when I give glory and when I give honor. So because woman is the glory of man, (laughs) that means she has the highest responsibility, the most glorious responsibility that God has given to man. And what is the most glorious responsibility that God has given to man? Again, man and woman. What What is the most important responsibility? It is submission to God. It is humbling ourselves before God being willing to obey everything that God says, being willing to receive everything that God gives, finding our identity in God. This is the essence of the will of God for man, right? Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. So all mankind, man and woman, is to be in subjection to God in that way. And then, because woman is the glory of man, God says, for woman, I have a special responsibility that will confer a special glory, a special dignity, especially in the age to come. And that is the glory, the beauty of submission. And if you will receive that responsibility, if we receive that command, if you will walk in that, then, beloved, I do trust that God has such dignity, such a glorious crown for wives in the age to come. (laughs) that we will scarcely be able to look upon you because of the glory that God wishes to lay upon you for that earthly role that God has given you to submit to your husbands. And so you see that that God doesn't pit one thing against another. He does not pit authority against submission. He does not pit male against female. He does not pit good against bad. No, he creates things, he creates them differently. And then he says, in all the diversity that I have created, I want you to work together to create something more glorious than what could have ever existed than I had just created everything the same. If everything looked identical. And so in this way, wives, I just encourage you to do as Peter himself instructs, in these verses, which is to look 
for what true beauty is? Where does true glory lie? Where does true majesty come from? It doesn't come from having the most authority. As verse 3 of 1 Peter 3 says, it doesn't come from putting on gold jewelry or putting on nice clothing. Where true glorification will come from, where true exaltation will come from, is by having a gentle and quiet spirit, as verse 4 says. A gentle and quiet spirit, a submissive spirit. Now again, beloved, I understand that if you're just looking at this from an earthly perspective, right? If you're looking at this from the perspective of, I want to live my best life now, (laughs) oftentimes submission is not the ideal, right? You will not be able to live your best life now living in submission to others. But again, what I am proposing is that God is offering to you the same glory that he offered to Jesus Christ by having Jesus Christ come to earth and humble himself to the point of death on a cross so that he could be highly exalted. That in the role of submission that you have right now, that God himself is preparing for you a glory that far outweighs any earthly reward that you could possibly get. A reward that I dare say will be better than a reward that husbands could receive by not having the privilege of submission that wives are given to their husbands. And so in this way, God is taking account of every last act of humility that you perform. God is taking account of every last moment of subjection that you experience. And God is counting up every one of those moments. And when you come and see his face, you will be very precious in his sight. As verse 4 says, God will give you glory insofar as you are obedient to him and as you humble yourself here on this earth in this life below. Now, husbands, a word for you before we close. Husbands, if you want your wife to submit in this way, what is it that you ought to do? Well, Scripture makes very clear that if we want our wives to submit to us in the way that Scripture commands them to, then we are to love them the way that Christ loves the church, right? Ephesians 5. This creation of man and woman, this creation of marriage that we read about in Genesis 2, God had a goal in mind when he created that. The goal that he had in mind was the goal of showing the beauty of Christ Jesus' love for his bride, for the church. Wives submit to their husbands because wives are like the church in that relationship. And in that way, husbands, all of us are wives, are we not? We are all brides to Jesus Christ. We all submit to Jesus Christ just the way that we would like our wives to submit to us. But husbands, if we want our wives to submit gladly in that way, then we need to do our utmost to be as good to our wives as Jesus Christ is to the church. And how good is Jesus Christ to the church? Beloved, he gave everything for the church. He gave his very life for the beautification of the church. Even when we were unwashed, even when we were sinners all, even when we were wretched and disobedient and did not do anything to make ourselves lovable. How did Christ love us? (laughs) He loved us to the uttermost. He gave himself for us. And so, husbands, there is no room. There is no room for you to coerce or for you to insist on submission from your wife. There is only room for you to sacrificially love your wife as Christ loved the church. And this just amplifies the beauty of authority and submission even more. If the submission of a wife could be the the glad submission of the church to her Savior, and if the authority of the husband 
could be the humble, dying authority, <clears throat> excuse me, dying authority of Jesus Christ for his church, then, beloved, our marriages in their headship, in their submission, can be this beautiful picture of the gospel itself. But again, if we don't embrace the distinction in roles, if we don't embrace the different responsibilities that God has given to man and woman, then we will not have a beautiful painting, right? We will not have a beautiful image that God has embedded in creation. We will just have a painting that is all one solid flat color that's nothing remarkable that anyone would want to look at. But the more husbands can embrace the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ, the more wives can embrace the loving submission of the church, the more we will display the beauty of God's creation, the beauty of what God has created us for as his image bearers, as the glory of God. This submission in the gospel of the church to her Savior, I think is most clearly shown in Romans 10, verses 3 and 4. So I just want to read this, and I'm going to close here. There the Apostle Paul writes of his Jewish brothers and sisters, he says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Okay, hear that word. They did not submit to God's righteousness. That word submit there, hupatasso, is the same word as the word for wives, submit to your husbands. They did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So in the Apostle Paul's mind, When we, the church, the bride of Christ, come to Christ and we want to submit to Jesus Christ, what does that submission entail? Now, I do believe that it entails, in part, that we listen to his commands, we follow his call, but if we simply just obey Christ as if he were a Lord or a master, I think we're only getting at the very most shallow level of what true submission really is. Again, in Romans 10.3, Paul calls us to submit to God's righteousness, to submit to Christ's righteousness. What does it mean to submit to Christ's righteousness? Well, it means simply this. When Jesus lived his perfect life, and when he died on a cross, and when he rose again, he said that if you will trust in me, if you will believe in me, then my righteousness will be applied to you as a gift. My perfect life will be applied to you as a gift. And so to submit to that righteousness means that we stop trying to accomplish a righteousness of our own. We stop trying to create a righteousness of our own. We no longer come to God and say, God, look at how many good things I've done. Won't you accept me because of all my good works, right? That is not submitting to Christ's righteousness. That's trying to create our own righteousness. Submitting to Christ's righteousness means we look to God and we say, God, I know that I am a wicked and sinful person and I cannot do right in my own strength. But I see that your son, Jesus Christ, has gifted me a perfect righteousness and I receive that righteousness through no effort of my own, through no merit of my own. I receive it. And I will live in his righteousness, not on my own. I won't try to prove myself to you. I will rest in Jesus Christ and in all that he's done. And so submission ultimately doesn't just mean, okay, I will do what you say. Submission ultimately means I see that you are good and that you have given me good gifts and you are able to provide for me in all these ways and I will rest in your provision. I will rest in your goodness. I will rest in who you are. And so church, husbands, wives, men, women, that is how we all are the bride of Christ. That is how we all submit to him. As we say, Christ, you are all in all, and I don't need to earn anything of my own because you have given me everything I need. And so, wives, if you want to submit to your husband in the same way, I would submit to you that that is ultimately how you submit. It's not a matter of just listening to your husband like he were the boss or something like that. Again, wives, you are to subdue, you are to have dominion just as your husbands are. You aren't just to check out. 
Rather, you are to engage with your husband. So how do you submit? You submit by saying, husband, I appreciate that you are able to provide, that you are able to lead, that you are able to be the only one that I need. And so I will rest in you. And I will rest in your care. I won't try to just get everything done on my own. But rather, I will receive the gift that you give. The submission that God delights in from us as his bride is submission that comes from the heart. It's a submission of love. And that is the same submission that God would love wives to show toward their husbands. Not the submission of demand, but the submission of love. And so, beloved, as we move into a time of prayer now, let's pray for one another that we all would submit to God the way that God's word tells us to as the bride of Christ. Let's pray for the wives in our church, especially that they would be able to submit to their husbands and that husbands would be able to reflect Christ. And in that way, marriage itself would be this beautiful picture of Christ and the church. And would we truly strive to glorify God, to enjoy his design as we look to the beautiful picture that God has painted in Christ giving himself for the church and the church submitting herself to her husband. Let's pray together now. Father, I do praise you for the beauty of your creation. I praise you for your wise plan, for your wise design. God, I pray that you would help us to not be a proud people that want to apply our own designs, (laughs) apply our own wisdom to our lives, but rather that we would receive the good design, the glory, Lord, that you have prepared for us. And so in that way, Father, I pray that we, as men and women in this church, as husband and wives, as the bride of Christ, that we would glorify you in every last way that you've designed. I thank you, Lord, for the gift of Jesus Christ coming in submission to you as his Father. And Lord, would you grant that all of us would walk in that same kind of submission to you as Jesus himself did. And so strengthen us, Lord, for this difficult earthly calling, but for this beautiful earthly calling that you've given. Would you hear our prayers now for ourselves and for the world around us as we cry out to you?